Hey, folks, before we start really exciting news, we now have CME available from ACRAC. That's right. You can get AMA PRA Category 1 credit for listening to ACRAC and then filling out just a quick survey question that will take you not more than about 30 seconds to a minute. Those links are at the website, ACRAC.com, in each uh, show notes, you can see right under the description, there will be a bold CME with a link. You click on that link. It's a small cost for each credit, much less than you would pay to go to a conference or get the 20 or 30 or 40 credits that you need for the year. You can do them one at a time for each episode that you listen to and get a full credit for just listening to an ACRAC episode and then filling out this quick question. This is powered by CMEFI. It's using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. And it really is great. You can do this in just a minute or less and get credit. So if you are out there looking for a way to get PRA Category 1 credit for your CME requirements, or if you're already getting it somewhere but you're already listening to ACRAC anyway and you'd like to get it from this, now you can. Every episode can get you a credit, so you can get more than 200 credits from ACRAC episodes by listening and then clicking on that link on the website at ACRAC.com. All right, now on with the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Swimsuit, check. Sunscreen, check. Phone charger, check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm really excited because I have with me today a former guest on the show, a former one of my residents, a former fantastic trainee, then cardiac fellow. Now he is doing a combined OB fellowship with some attending time, and then we'll be staying on to be an attending full-time at George Washington University School of Medicine. He is just an all-around fantastic person. We miss him here at Hopkins, but are glad that he has found a home a little south of us, and he's going to come and talk to us today about a really interesting emerging topic that not a lot of people know a lot about that plays a huge role, though, in a lot of what we do, and that is the glycocalyx. And I am talking about the one and only Dr. Marius Fassbinder. Marius, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jed. Um, Thanks for having me. Um, You know, I've been a longtime listener of your show. I love the show. Um, I keep hearing, uh, you know, Steve Freiberg, who's a great guy, but who I've never met, and now Kia Sedgi. Um, who's not answering my texts, but I keep listening to his <laughs> podcast. And, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to, to stay up there, you know, get in a podcast at a time. So that's right. That's right. Well, the, you these were cardiac the, fellows don't take off, you know. That's right. Well, you were one of the, uh, the few original residents to come on the show when you were resident. And I'm so glad to get you back now that you're essentially in attending. So um, awesome. So we're going to talk about the glycocalyx um, and why. Why is this something you think um, we should talk about? All right. Um, so I have to circle back a little bit. Uh, when I was a medical student and uh, during the early years of my residency, I used to do a little bit of research where I looked at um, mostly at balanced crystalloids. Um, so I read a lot about, um, you know, fluid and volume therapy and all of that. And then this one thing that came up over and over again when I was reading about it was the glycocalyx. And I had heard about it in 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 medical school, but in a much more real sense, I had absolutely no clue what that was. So I started reading about it and I got fascinated about it because I think um, it can help understand certain things that we see in clinical practice. It can help explain it if you have a better understanding about the glycocalyx. So before we jump into it, um, you know, I want to say 
um, if, if you listen to this at six o'clock in the morning, like I usually do on my way to work, um, don't turn off the radio just yet because I will do this talk uh, mostly with a focus on the clinician. This is not a talk for the basic scientists. It can be get, getting, uh, it, it can get pretty complicated if you dive into it too much, but this is really aimed at clinicians and uh, uh, I will present it in a way or will try to present it in a way that everybody can just listen to it. And I will start off with a teaser. You know, um, at the end of this talk, hopefully you better understand certain things like does fluid loading make sense? You know, before we perform a neuraxial block, should we fluid load the patient? Um, should we give uh, hyperoncotic albumin in order to decrease pulmonary edema in septic patients? Um, or what is the volume effect if you compare a crystalloid with a colloid? Um, so the talk is not only about the glycocalyx, uh, but also aimed to answer these questions. And one more thing, this uh, talk is mostly food for thought. You know, it is not based on any clinical trials that are available. Um, to, to prove those concepts. Um, and a lot of important things about the glycocalyx uh, do not fit into today's talk. And those um, concern, you know, signaling, its role in signaling pathways, its interaction with immune cells, how the glycocalyx controls, uh, you know, the access to certain cell receptors. Now, today's talk is mostly focused on its role in fluid filtration across the endothelial barrier. Great. And that's such an important topic in anesthesia and critical care is how we think about fluid resuscitation, what role this glycocalyx plays. And I guess we should say, you know, what we're talking about here is a layer, you'll tell us more, but a layer that is at the, you know, outside, uh, or I guess the the innermost side of the um, blood vessels, so that the fluid, if it were to get out, has to pass through it. Um, but you'll tell us a little more. But I think, you know, just the idea of how this plays a role in fluid therapy, the things you said, should we be using does it make sense to do fluid resuscitation the way we do it? And this is really a key piece of that question. So why don't we start um, very basically, you know, what is the glycocalyx? Um, you know, before we even jump into that, um, I would say, you know, today we talk not only about the glycocalyx. I would start off actually talking about the Starling equation. Sure. And if you hear equation, again, don't turn your radio off. I will not <laughs> go through through the specifics of it, but, uh, you know, it's general idea. And then we talk to the, about the glycocalyx, you know, what should we know about it? What is it? What harms it? Um, how does it influence our view on the Starling equation? How does it help us conceptualize on how crystalloids and colloids work? And then let's complete today's talk by, again, looking at the Starling equation, maybe a little bit revised. And, uh, you know, what conclusions we can draw from that um, to help us explain, you know, answer or help us answer the questions that we've raised. Um, and then before we jump into that, um, you know, I want to talk about a few, uh, a few principles and a few basics to keep in mind. Um, and before, and, and I would start before we even start about the Stalling equation, you know, think about your arteries and the arterioles and then your capillaries and how the hydrostatic pressure within them tends to push fluid towards the interstitia. Um, the second thing is, whatever fluid is filtered needs to somehow return to the circulation. It cannot stay in the tissue, otherwise we see tissue edema. Um, and whenever we talk about colloids today, uh, we talk about a colloid as a molecule that has water binding properties, that attracts water, okay? Okay, so great. And when you say that we need to return things to circulation, you're talking about lymph, right? We're talking about the lymphatic system, which is going to take fluid that does get out into the tissue and return it to the circulation, right? Yes, we'll get to that when we talk about the Starling equation. Starling, um, actually, let, let me start talking about that. Um, yeah, tell us about that. What, remind what, what, us, remind us, yeah. what is this Starling equation? And, and yes, you know, I, I agree with you. We don't want people clicking off their their podcasts uh, at the sound of that. So we're, we're not going to, yeah. as you said, get into the detailed math of it, but give us, give us an example. Tell us why you're, why you want to talk about this. So, so when Starling looked at this um, at first, um, 
sometime in the late 1900s, around 1896, you know, he, he injected um, saline or plasma into uh, the hindlimb of a dog. And he observed that um, saline got reabsorbed, but plasma left a bump. And he somewhat concluded that post-capillary venules behave as a semi-permeable membrane absorbing fluid from the interstitial space, somewhat attracted by that, call it osmotic pressure. So he uh, made a theory and he made this equation defining that the main determinants of um, filtration and reabsorption in the body are um, guided by the colloid osmotic pressure within the blood vessel, uh, the hydrostatic pressure within the blood vessel, the colloid osmotic pressure in the interstitium, and the hydrostatic pressure in the interstitium. Um, he further concluded that, you know, when he looked at it, that albumin uh, was likely the most important plasma protein. And it plays a major role in exerting that colloid osmotic pressure. Um, and that, that could be measured even at the time and uh, is anywhere between 25 and 30 millimeters mercury. Um, so again, based on these observations, Starling postulated that, you know, in the, the upstream segments of um, capillaries on the arterial end, fluid is being filtered until the colloid osmotic pressure within that capillary um, is so much higher than in the interstitium that now reabsorption in the downstream segment takes place, you know, towards the renal end of that capillary. And, you know, whenever uh, the hydrostatic pressure in the capillaries exceeds a certain degree, you know, is, is higher than those 25 or 30 millimeters mercury, water would leave the capillary. And whenever it drops below, water would be reabsorbed. Um, so this model is also called a high filtration, high reabsorption model. Uh, and, you know, if, if there's a high venous pressure present or a low plasma protein concentration, this would lead to edema. So this is, this is the main principle of the Starling equation. You know, whenever um, your hydrostatic pressure exceeds your colloid osmotic pressure in that capillary, you see filtration. Whenever it's below, you see reabsorption. Very, and, very generally speaking. Right. And Marius, just so we make sure, tell me if I'm right here, that every, and I want everyone to understand, the, when we talk about hydrostatic pressure, that's kind of what we always think about of pressure. If you think about a hose and you turn on the tap and the water in the hose is going through that hose with a certain amount of pressure, whatever pressure that is exerting on the wall of that hose, that's the hydrostatic pressure. It's just the pressure that the water in the hose is exerting on the, on the hose itself. And if you made yeah. little holes, if you made little holes in that hose, then the higher that pressure, the more water would squirt out those holes. The oncotic pressure is the amount of solute that's in the, if let's use our hose example, if we ha put a bunch of, you know, salt inside that water and then we ran that hose through a uh, tank with water that had no salt in it some of that water from the outside might get sucked in to the through those holes in the hose to get inside to dilute out that salt that is the oncotic pressure that is pulling it in the solute that's pulling it in and in, in your case what you're talking about is primarily albumin which is attracting that water so you've got these opposing forces you've got pressure inside the vessel pushing out You've got oncotic pressure from the albumin and other things pulling in. And what you're saying is when that hydrostatic pressure is high, it's going to overcome the, the pull of the oncotic pressure. It's going to push fluid out. When you get maybe to the end of that vessel and you no longer have such high hydrostatic pressure, now the oncotic pressure wins and you pull fluid in. Is that, is that, am I right? Yes, uh, with one exception that when I talk about the solutes, I, I uh, specifically do not talk about um, the salts because they tend to get filtered uh, versus albumin, which tends to be a bigger type molecule, does not readily get filtered in most capillaries. Great. So um, let's fix my analogy that, and yeah. say, in my analogy, we'll put protein in the hose instead of, uh, exactly. instead of salt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's do that. Fair enough. Um, okay. so, so, so the question is like, what have we learned since those initial experiments in 1896? Um, 
and and I have to say, uh, you know, this list is not complete, but studies have been done, and and the main observation was that in a lot of tissues, uh, we do not see a lot of reabsorption of fluids into the venous capillaries. Um, there are exceptions to that, um, and they uh, they refer to certain tissues such as the the kidney or the intestine. But in, in most tissues that we work with, um, we do not see that reabsorption. And um, all the fluid that is filtered, or a lot of the fluid that is filtered, needs to somehow return to the circulation. Um, and we think it's a series of, you know, um, veins, then it gets filtered into the interstitium, and it's being returned by the lymph. And... Um, Experiments could show later on that, um, you know, the colloid osmotic pressure in the interstitium in most tissues is actually not zero. That's what, or, or not even close to zero, which is what Strahling used to believe. But it's more like 40 to 50% of what we see in the intravascular system. And in addition to that, um, people develop micro pipetting techniques where they could actually measure the capillary pressures in real time. And they could see that the capillary pressure, uh, the hydrostatic pressure in arterial capillaries at the level of the heart are about 35 millimeters mercury. And the venous capillary hydrostatic pressure at the level of the heart is around 15 millimeters mercury. Now you do not need to remember um, those specific numbers uh, but, uh, you know, we, we learned a couple of things since Stalling's initial equation. And this is the time where we should probably all take a deep breath and, you know, before we start talking about the glycocalyx, the glycocalyx itself. itself. So let me make sure I understand. You're saying Starling didn't have it quite right, or at least there were some holes in, in what he knew. And he, he thought that at the end of that, when you get to that capillary, um, that venous capillary, you're going to start reabsorbing all this fluid because you now have high oncotic pressure, but low hydrostatic pressure. And so it's going to suck all this fluid back in. And you're saying that that doesn't look like it's true in most tissues. Is that right? Correct. I, I wouldn't say Starling wasn't right for, he, he was actually far ahead of his time. And, you know, based on the techniques he had available, I think he did amazing work. Um, but maybe we need to rewrite that equation a little bit. Um, and we can talk about that more after we talk about the glycocalyx. I think it'll make more sense after talking about the glycocalyx. Great. Perfect. But that part about the fact that we don't really reabsorb a lot of that fluid directly into the veins, that's true. Yeah, that appears to be true in most tissues with exceptions. Okay, great. All right. So now, as you said, let's dive into the glycocalyx. What do you think an anesthesiologist should know about the endothelial glycocalyx? I think the, the, the first important thing to know about the, the endothelial glycocalyx is that it appears to be playing a major role in, in determining transvascular fluid shifts. And it seems to play a role in that whole filtration and reabsorption model. Um, we also need to know that certain diseases affected um, or certain interventions affected. Um, you know, we now know that trauma um, destroys the glycocalyx, inflammation destroys it. Um, and we also need to know about the endothelial glycocalyx because it, it can help us understand how colloids work in clinical practice. Um, and having that said, I want to give another disclaimer that, you know, Whatever you learn in today's talk, please, uh, it's, it's, it's not aimed as an advice on therapies. It's really aimed to help you understand how this whole thing works as a, as a whole. Um, so for, for those reasons, I think it's important to know about the glycocalyx. One more thing I would like to mention, the glycocalyx is a structure that is actually present on a lot of eukaryotic cells. Um, whenever we talk about the glycocalyx, in this talk, in today's talk, I talk about the endothelial glycocalyx. Great. All right. So everyone is on the edge of their seat here, Marius. So we've yeah. got to tell them what okay. is okay. 
What is the glycocalyx? What is it? Okay. So the glycocalyx is a sugar-based lining that coats the luminal surface of endothelial cells. Um, you can think of it as a, as a mesh of sugars, you know, things like mucopolysaccharides associated with uh, other uh, funny-sounding molecules such as proteoglycans and glycosaminoglycanes. Um, one of them is, for example, hyaluronic acid. In addition to those that tend, those molecules that tend to be membrane bound, or at least some of them, um, this sugar-based mesh contains um, proteins such as albumin, and um, the glycocalyx is made in a way uh, that you know it's it's through its composition, it's mostly negatively charged, and it. it, it has a higher potential of retaining uh, positively charged plasma proteins, and, and albumin is one of them. Um, so, so this is the one thing about the glycocalyx. Um, now, let's think a little more about the anatomy of the structure, like how thick it is. Um, and this was not an easy question to answer for a long time because it was extremely hard to visualize it because most histologic techniques would actually destroy it. Uh, but I can tell you now that, you know, through various measurements and visualizations, we know that this thickness varies anywhere between 0.2 and 8 micrometers, you know, 0.2 being small capillaries, 8 micrometers being large vessels. And we also know that below the glycocalyx, on top of the endothelial cell, is a tiny fluid-filled space. And we will refer to that fluid full space as the non-circulating portion of intravascular volume. So that's, that's a little bit of water sitting there that does not take part in, you know, the circulation at all times. It just sits there, you know. And Mary, and do we then, have any feel for how much, uh, in an average person, how much fluid is sitting there in that space? So we did some experiments, and by we, I, I, I say, I, I didn't do experiments, but I, I read uh, experiments around this. And what people did is they injected tracers into the vasculature, um, um, and they they used labeled proteins, labeled dextrans, um, and followed that. And they uh, first injected, um, you know, small dextrans that would readily cross the glycocalyx, and then they would inject um, dextrans that were too big, so they couldn't penetrate the glycocalyx. And then they subtracted one from the other and theorized that about 1,700 cc's in an adult person sits in those sits below the glycocalyx. So, so uh, it's quite a bit. Yeah, quite it's, a bit. It's it's yeah, it's almost two liters. Okay, so quite a bit. And is it? Uh, accessible? Is it recruitable when needed or is it trapped there forever? So I believe it's recruitable and um, it's mostly recruitable from raising your intravascular colloid osmotic pressure. So now if you give um, hyperoncotic albumin, uh, I do think that we can recruit this volume um, not so much the volume that sits below the basement membrane of the endothelial cell, but, you know, uh, we, we did a lot of studies, and we'll talk more about that today, where people were giving hyperoncotic albumin, and we could see that the volume effect was quite significant. You know, it raised cardiac output, and uh, it's higher than, let's say, if you give chrysalids. I think there's no doubt around that. But we need to take, talk about that more in, in a little bit of detail later on. Great. All right. So tell me more about this glycocalyx layer. So as I mentioned, it seems to be only semi-permeable to anionic macromolecules such as albumin or plasma proteins. Uh, it actually appears non-penetratable to proteins larger than 70 kilodaltons. Um, it can actually be visualized in vivo now using a technique with the name of orthogonal polarization spectral imaging. I have no clue what that is, but it can be visualized. 
And uh, it really separates um, the circulating portion that contains the red blood cells from the non-circulating portion and then from everything that comes below, such as the endothelial cell and, and the basement membrane and then the, the interstitia. So we, um, we normally, yeah. th- I think most of us, and certainly I, before I heard about this, thought of you've got your, your blood vessel and you've got blood and plasma inside it. And it's just right up against the wall and that's flowing. And that is, as it turns out, probably not true. What you're saying is that you've got the blood and plasma and then between that and the wall of the capillary or the vessel, whatever it is, you have this glycocalyx layer. And then between the glycocalyx and the wall, you have this, um, this fluid that sits there kind of separated out this non-circulating fluid. And then you have the wall of the vessel itself, right? Exactly. Exactly. All right. And we kind of already talked about how much, fluid is contained in there. You said up to 1700 ml is a huge amount in, in healthy adults. So that's quite impressive. And then you mentioned some things that can, can damage it. And theoretically, that's going to interfere with this whole system, right? Exactly. So, and s- some of these things that damage it uh, may be related to the things we do. Um, so oxidative stress, uh, I believe in several podcasts before you talked about, you know, uh, administering 100% FiO2 that may be harmful because it may also harm the glycocalyx. Um, ischemia harms it. Um, hypervolemia may harm it. So if we give a lot of fluid, that may harm it. We know that inflammation, sepsis, and trauma harms it. But we do not know to what extent, and we do not know how much different tissues are affected by it because the glycocalyx is not the same in all tissues. Okay, yeah. Tell me about that. So what do you mean it's not the same in all tissues? So it's not present in the same way. And I will not talk about all the tissues um, because it will get a little bit too confusing. Um, but I, I will mention the liver, the spleen, and the bone marrow um, because those tissues actually do not or appear not to contain a glycocalyx. And this is important because, um, you know, as experiments have shown, the liver that produces a lot of the proteins that we see in plasma um, bases its production based on the colloid osmotic pressure that the hepatic interstitium sees. So, so basically you look at the liver and the liver is to some extent, the liver interstitium is to some extent freely communicating with those plasma protein and reacts to it. Um, why is this important? This is important because that could mean that if we give anything in addition to the albumin or to the other proteins already present in the plasma, the liver may react to it. So if you now give a bottle of albumin um, that may have a good volume effect uh, intermittently, but it may tell your liver, you know what? stop producing it. Um, it's also important to mention those tissues because um, those tissues uh, appear to be a major route for escape of plasma proteins. Um, we now know that the liver makes up about half for the lymph production that we see in the body. And uh, this amount actually increases in hyperdynamic states such as sepsis. So in sepsis, the liver is being perfused more and the amount of proteins that are being taken out by the liver in in those instances is increased. Um, So this is why the glycocalyx is not different. I will not talk about the glycocalyx in in the kidney today and in some other tissues because it just goes too far for today's talk. But we will um, um, attach some references uh, to the website um, uh, for the interested listener, you know they can they can look it up. Perfect, perfect. All right, so Marius, tell me what do we know about the role of the glycocalyx? Why is it there? What does it do? So again, um, it appears to be important in uh, in determining vascular permeability. Um, let me say at this point that it's not the only structure that. Um, you know, uh, uh, determines how much, how much, uh, fluid is leaving the intravascular space because there's also the basement membrane. There are, uh, 
junctions in between cells that play a role in that. There's probably the um, interstitial uh, matrix that can see changes um, that also governs that, but it, it plays an important role. It definitely plays an important role in mechanotransduction, which we'll, we'll not touch on, so signaling pathways. Um, it does regulate interactions be, between blood cells and epithelial cells. It may play a role in the exposure of certain receptors and in inflammation. So it does regulate, uh, you know, uh, those receptors. Um, and those are just a few things that we know that the glycocalyx is, is important in. All right, we'll be back in a minute with more on the glycocalyx. Stay with us. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. And now back to the show with Dr. Marius Fassbinder. Great. All right. We talked about things that damage the glycocalyx. What about things that protect it? Um, so studies have been done to look at what can protect um, the glycocalyx. And, and most of these studies were done in the lab. Uh, but, you know, from those studies, we can think that, you know, the prevention of oxidative stress and ischemia protected. Um, antithrombin-3 appears to protect it. Um, albumin in itself may play a role in the protection of the glycocalyx. Sevoflurane anesthesia may protect it. And the infusion of glycosaminoglycans, such as hyaluronic acid or chondroitine sulfate, um, are factors that protect it. Having that said, um, there's currently no clinical interventions that we can do in order to restore a damaged glycocalyx. Uh, it's, we need to focus more on the underlying disease uh, for protection. So it's interesting. You mentioned before that it's possible that large volume crystalloid resuscitation can damage it, whereas things like albumin and maybe blood products potentially may help protect it. So that's interesting, but probably not a conclusion we can draw about sort of what to use. Like you said, this isn't really about recommending therapies. It's just kind of right now interesting food for thought. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I I didn't come across any any studies that you know, um, could show clinical benefits of any of those interventions. Uh, but, you know, avoiding stress to the glycocalyx is probably the number one thing that we can do in order to protect it in, and maybe in order to prevent um, tissue edema. Yep. All right. So let's go back to where we kind of started. You were revved up about the Starling equation. You did a very nice job of kind of explaining it without getting into the weeds. But you also said we probably might have to you know, you, you were protective of Starling. You said he wasn't wrong, but we might just have to revise the Starling equation with what we now know. So what would you say if we had to think about revising the Starling equation, taking into account what we know about the, the glycocalyx, what would we do? So when we look at it again, uh, we now know that between the inner portion of our vasculature and the endothelial cell sits this structure. And I mentioned that uh, that below this structure, there's a fluid-filled space that is free or almost free of proteins. So we can now say that, you know, that protein concentration gradient that Stalin talked about between the intravascular system and the interstitium doesn't really exist between those two, but more so between the, the luminal side of the glycocalyx and then 
the the side that is facing the endothelial cell. So so um, let me try to phrase this better. The 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 called osmotic concentration different. It actually difference happens actually within um, the capillary in and of itself rather than between the capillary and the interstitium. Um, and it's that colored osmotic pressure difference that opposes arterial filtrations of, of plasma content and fluids. Um, but it doesn't really help um, explain, or it, it actually, it does help explain why we do not see as much reabsorption, you know, uh, because when you now give a hyperoncotic solution, you can say, okay, maybe it draws in fluid from, from that um, non-circulating portion of the glycocalyx rather than from the interstitium. Right. So it is, this is it really interesting. So what you're saying is that because what the interstitium is up against, the thing closest to the interstitium is that non-circulating volume, which has about the same oncotic pressure as the interstitium. So there's actually no force pulling in from the interstitium at least no oncotic pressure pulling in from the interstitium. But if you increase the oncotic pressure in the circulating volume, it might pull from that potentials or that, that non-circulating volume because you're increasing the oncotic pressure on the inside of the glycocalyx so that fluid on the outside of the glyco- glycocalyx, which has a lower oncotic pressure, might get pulled in. But it, this is all within the vessel, as you said. This is not anything getting pulled in from the interstitium. Correct. And this is... The reason why, you know, if you give hyperarcotic um, albumin, you do see a transient increase in, in the circulating volume, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and one has to be careful when, you know, interpreting the, the increase in volume when just looking at red cell dilution, because you don't really know if that dilution happens because now that non-circulating portion is being recruited or whether interstitial fluid is being recruited. And, and now the listener may say, hey, you know what? You're telling me all of this, but like, how do you know? Like, yeah, how do you know? Like, how, how do we get there? Um, and some researchers made a cool experiment where they took an isolated capillary and they immersed that capillary into a medium where the column colloid osmotic pressure of that medium could be altered. So they looked, and then they looked at the amount of filtration that happened within that capillary. And they noticed that, you know, the main thing that alters filtration is the hydrostatic pressure that is being um, exerted on that capillary rather than a change in the colloid osmotic pressure and the, the medium surrounding it. And, and that really helped um, you know, shape those ideas and, and, and wrap our heads around it. Um, because this can get very confusing, let me try to, to say this one more time. The colored osmotic pressure opposing filtration appears to be across the glycocalyx and not across the endothelial cell. Because remember... On the endothelial side, so the side facing the tissue of the glycocalyx, there is a space filled with fluid containing a low oncotic pressure, comparable to the oncotic pressure of the interstitium. This again means that the oncotic pressure difference determining the amount of fluid that is being filtered is not across those cells towards the tissue, but within the endothelium or within the blood vessel in and of itself. There, there appears to be almost no reabsorption happening on the venial end of capillaries. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, so that was a cool experiment where they showed that even if you added protein to the uh, medium that these vessels were in, it didn't affect anything. So really is not, uh, oncotic pressure plays less of a role than we thought, in, uh, it maybe not much of a role at all in terms of trans- uh, vessel movement of, of fluid. So that's really interesting. All right. So why do we care about this when we think about clinical practice? How, how is this relevant clinically? Okay. So be, before I talk about clinical practice, please keep in mind that we still know very little about the structure. 
and about the surrounding structures, you know, the, the attachments between cells, how they play a role. And what I'm about to say is not necessarily a recommendation for practice. And, and none of what I will say has been proved by any clinical studies. But these observations can help explain certain clinical situations. Because if we believe that the hydrostatic pressure difference is so important, rather than the colored osmotic pressure difference, this has important implications. And let me use um, some examples here. Um, it raises the possibility that giving hyperoncotic albumin may simply dehydrate the subendothelial space and the glycocalyx rather than drawing any fluid from the interstitium. So if you're trying to now treat lung edema, this may not work. Whether you add, you know, Lasix to it or not, it doesn't work. And, um, you know, listeners may know uh, or may have heard about the, the FATE trial, which looked at this. And, and, you know, even though it's still at its beginnings, and so far we couldn't see a difference, you know, in, in the development or the maintenance of lung edema. Um, this glycocalyx model could also serve as an explanation um, why we see very little difference in hemodynamic outcomes and the volume infused between colloid and crystalloids in the number of trials. Um, because again, that pressure difference is intravascular rather than transendothelial. Now, you know, People may say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we know that colloids uh, create an increase in intravascular volume and cardiac output. And I don't deny that. Um, all I'm saying is that, you know, that one may be transient because now the liver senses those external colloids and it makes less of its own albumin and then equalizes. And also think about the fact giving external albumin in... Um, in a normal tensification, let me make up an example here. So you, you have a normal tensification, you, you give that patient albumin. Simply by giving that patient albumin, you may raise the patient's capillary pressures and therefore drive fluid out of it. If you have a hypotensive patient, you know, it shouldn't be, based on this model, it shouldn't really matter whether you give a chrysloid or a coid in the initial stage because when you're hypotensive, your capillary pressures are lower. And since the hydrostatic force is the main force driving fluids out of the blood vessel, you know, you first refill the intravascular space to, to normal capillary pressures before you see that filtration. So that's, that's another thing. Um, this may also help explain why norepinephrine may be a very useful drug in septic patients because we know that norepinephrine constricts those um, um, precapillary arterioles and lowers the hydrostatic pressure. So this, this may actually help prevent edema formation to a certain extent. Um, Having all of this said, we know that, you know, in all these situations, the glycocalyx can also be damaged and, you know, it may no longer work the way I just explained it. We're, we're just talking about the healthy state. But, but the main message I'm trying to, to get across here is that um, volume therapy may be a little bit trickier than we thought. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like it. And, you know, let me ask you this because it's interesting to think about since what we're what we think is there isn't so much reabsorption of fluid from the interstitium that fluid if it's going to get back to the vasculature goes through the lymphatic system and then is is brought back into the vasculature is there any reason to think that raising the oncotic pressure in the vessels will help keep it in once it gets in you know so it gets pulled back into the lymphatic system dumped into the vasculature can we help prevent it from leaking out by giving concentrated albumin? Is there any reason to think that that works? Yeah, definitely. For a short period of time, that 
is definitely what we see, right? If, if we raise the colloid osmotic pressure, uh, we do see less filtration for as long as the hydrostatic pressure remains the same. Mm-hmm. If we now give albumin and raise that hydrostatic pressure, you know, those effects may equal up. Sure. Um, but yeah, um, you know, that, that may be true. Keeping in mind that the liver at the end of the day will respond to that one way or another. Um, the, the liver will sense that external albumin and may decide that, you know, I'm, I'm making a little less today. Right. And, you know, the, to complicate all of this, right, of course, is the fact that it, let's say we think, all right, well, we don't want to give necessarily the albumin because, like you said, first of all, we don't have any studies to suggest that in, in most of these states, albumin is helpful and it's more expensive. But looking at what you've talked about, if you give the albumin and it raises the oncotic pressure, then that may, I'm sorry, if it raises the hydrostatic pressure, then that may just fight the the effect you're looking for. So maybe you think, well, maybe it's crystalloid better than, except we think maybe crystalloid damages the glycocalyx. So how does that play? Right. So this is all very, what I'm taking away is this is very complicated. It is very complicated. Um, but the one thing I'm pretty sure of is you, you cannot reliably treat tissue edema by raising your colloid osmotic pressure. And think about this. Um, you're an intensivist, Ted. So in septic patients, um, your colloid osmotic pressure is not necessarily lower. And now a lot of listeners will say, oh, wait a minute, your albumin drops in sepsis. But then you see all these other proteins coming up, you know, all the acute phase proteins. So, sure. you know, and we certainly see a lot of edema there. And and I don't think it's, you know, that the physiology is simple enough to say, hey, you know, let's raise that colloid osmotic pressure and get rid of the edema. I don't think it works that way. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And, you know, the other the other thing that I think is interesting to think about is obviously the one way we certainly know we can get rid of edema is if we can get a patient to urinate it off, right? So eventually a patient who is diuresing well and is two, three, four liters net negative every day is going to have a reduction in that edema. And then the question is, you know, can, let's say we have a patient who we're trying that, but they get hypotensive. And then we add that concentrated albumin, like you said, it's certainly, there are a lot of people who feel like it works when they use it, though there may not be, and there, there is not actual study data to support it. But I do wonder if mechanistically we could imagine a situation in which we're pulling that fluid through the lymphatic system into the, into the vasculature, where it's getting filtered by the kidney, it's getting urinated out, and we're now a little bit intravascularly depleted, adding that albumin, which allows some of that lymphatic fluid to, to stay intravascular long enough to get filtered through the kidney, maybe that is helpful. Again, no one's been able to show that in a, in a study, but I wonder if there's some way in which that could work. Maybe, but you're, you're bringing up the example of, you know, a septic patient that is hypotensive, right? And, and I can tell you for sure, giving that patient hyperoncotic albumin versus um, a crystalloid will at least transiently um, raise that patient's blood pressure more than the crystalloid. And you see a bigger increase in cardiac output compared to crystalloid. Uh, we, we know this. We, we've all observed this many, many times. But you need to think ahead a little bit. And I, I don't think you can say, okay, now we diurese it out and everything is, is fine. Because we learned today that in those septic patients, the glycocalyx may be damaged. Yep. And now more of that albumin may, may actually escape your vasculature and mess with the colloid osmotic pressure in the interstitium. And now you have created a problem more than a solution. In addition, again, I know I've mentioned it a million times, but the liver um, also has a word in this and may decide to make less down the road, which, you know, may hurt you later on. We don't know. We don't know is, 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 is the answer. Anybody saying like they know at this point whether this works or not? I, I don't think they do. But I think this, this you know, these, these basic science observations can help us explain some of the things we see in, in clinical practice. Yeah. 
Well, let me ask you two things. One, you mentioned earlier about the kind of thing we've all, we were all taught in medical school that, you know, giving albumin is going to expand the vasculature three, four, five times as much as crystalloid because of the redistribution of the crystalloid. So I want you to address that if, if you can. And then the other is you had mentioned the question of whether we should be preloading volume before, for example, an epidural or a spinal. And does that, do we know anything? Can we draw any conclusions from what we've talked about today about that? Yeah. So, I do not think that you can make a standard statement that, you know, hyperoncotic albumin is five times more efficient in maintaining your intravascular volume or raising your intravascular volume compared to crystalloids. And, you know, there's a lot of volume kinetic studies out there that looked at this. Most of them come to the conclusion there's increased volume effect with hyperoncotic albumin. And I don't dispute that. Um, but the volume effect of crystalloids may be higher because people, or I was taught at least, that once you give a crystalloid, it, it freely distributes uh, within all the extracellular space in your body. And that's not true because there, there are tissues like bone, like the brain, um, and, and, and other non-expandable organs that do not see an increase in their volume when you give them crystalloids because their cell intracellular junctions are formed in a way that do not let water freely pass or there's no expandable space. So that in one explains why your volume effect is a little bit higher than that. Um, second, it also likely depends on the clinical situation. And we touched on this, you know, like, is your patient hypotensive? Is your patient hypertensive? Are we giving any additional drugs? And or is your um, glycocalyx intact, you know, at the moment where you give it? So, so the answer is, you know, in the initial phases, I think we're safe to say that you achieve a higher volume effect with colloids. I think that's that's a first statement to make in most tissues. Um, you know, there was, there was, I just came across a recent study in, in, in anesthesia analgesia where intraoperative intravascular effects of LR versus hyperoncotic albumin was compared and, and a co-administration was looked at and they used a, a, a mathematical model to, to determine uh, the volume effect. And that study came to the conclusion that, you know, albumin is, has a much higher volume effect. And, and I don't dispute that. I think that's the case. But like what I'm disputing is we don't see that volume effect um, based on recruitment of interstitial fluid. And I think that's a very important takeaway point. And then when it comes to, you know, preloading versus co-loading during your axle blockade, um, assuming you start off with a uh, normal volemic patient, I don't think preloading makes any sense because now you're only raising your um, capillary pressures and you will drive some of that fluid out into the interstitium. If you're normal lemic to start with, you know, it doesn't matter whether you use a crystalloid or colloid in that setting. I don't think it matters. I think it matters that you vasoconstrict that patient once they see that sympathectomy. Uh, and, and that's what we see in, in, in most of the studies. Um, yeah. And same with co-loading. I mean, co-loading... I personally, in my practice, I, I do co-load the patient, not so much to fight hypotension, but more so to remind myself that I need to have access in that patient that is just about to get a neuraxial block so I can give a vasopressor to fight that, you know, vasodilation. Um, but, you know, not, not so much for, for volume. volume yeah. effects. If your patient is hypovolemic, of course, give them volume. And I think give them crystalloid. Yeah. And it's so it's such a good point. You know, I think we so often see hypotension and, and our first thought is give some fluid. But if we know the hypotension came from vasodilation, whether that's because we did a, a, a norexial blockade that caused vasodilation, whether it's from general anesthesia that's causing vasodilation, then really it doesn't make a ton of sense. And uh, what makes sense is to try to get back to the vascular tone you had before you caused the sympathectomy. So use some presser. Uh, and I, we're talking, of course, about, a, as you said, a normal volemic patient. So I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that makes a ton of sense. So Marius, what do you want your takeaways to be? What do you want people to, to take home from what we've talked about? Because we've covered a lot of stuff. 
Yeah. Um, you know, acknowledge the presence of this fragile structure, though it's there. Um, also remember that uh, while there is no specific treatment available to protect the glycalyx, uh, we should probably try to avoid damaging the structure. Um, I think it's fair to say that an intact glycalyx is an important component in the prevention of tissue edema. And, and as of today, the, the best way of protecting it is really done by treating the underlying disease state. Um, edema development does not solely depend on the glycocalyx. There's also intracellular junctions. There's the basement membrane. There's the extracellular matrix. Those are all important determinants in fluid filtration. They all change in disease states and, and also play a very important role. So, so keep that in mind. At last, um, you know, fluid therapy is tricky. Um, colloids are important in the body. Um, however, administering external colloids uh, is not trivial and may lead to changes that, you know, uh, far exceed the immediate clinical setting where you, where you use them. Um, yeah, that, that's about what I have to say. Stay curious, you know. Of course, great. I, I I hope you're not lo- losing a ton of listeners after today. So. <laughs> I don't think so. If they made it past uh, the equation talk up front, then I think they got a lot out of this. Marius, as always, it's been a pleasure, and this is really great. Thank you. Let's go to the portion of our show where we um, make random recommendations. Do you have something uh, you'd recommend the audience check out that you've been uh, interested in lately? Um, sure. Um, since, you know, since a lot of these papers that I read came, came out of England, um, let me, let me make two random recommendations. One, um, you know, I, I just started watching it again. A lot of listeners may know David Attenborough, the, 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 the very famous, uh, nature filmer. And I was watching a life on our planet and this beautiful BBC documentary. You can watch it on Netflix. It's just fabulous that the, the planet that we live in. Uh, it's worth protecting. I, I love that show. I love that man. I, you know, I adore the fact that he's 93 and still walking around hosting these shows. Absolutely. And this, the second recommendation is, is a podcast also, uh, out of England that I came across. It's, it's called the Trojan horse affair. Um, it was done in collaboration with the New York times. If, if you put it into your, podcast you'll you'll find it it's it's an amazing story great journalism listen yeah. to a trojan horse affair yeah it's such a good recommendation maris i am um i think on episode three right now and uh, it is really really interesting and and disturbing uh, but it's a true story and worth checking out for sure thank you um i am gonna uh kind of go back and forward here and that um long-time listeners may remember that uh, quite a while back um I talked about a uh, COVID kind of cognitive aid tool that had developed uh, had been developed by some folks in um, uh, in Australia, and um, it was uh, really well done. It was called ASCAR, Anesthesia Cognitive Aid Research, their group, and they now have a an iPhone app. They're still working on the Android app, but they have an iPhone app that has been really expanded. So not only do they have COVID resources, but they've got cognitive aids for neuro, OB, cardiac, trauma, um, and a lot more that they're working on. And it's a totally free app. Uh, We'll put the link in the show notes. It's called ASCAR, A-S-C-A-R. And it's a really neat uh, cognitive aid tool you can get for free on your phone that can help you out uh, if you're thinking through stuff in the OR. So um, shout out to uh, the folks who worked on that. That's Jesse Mulder um, and his team uh, in uh, Australia. So thank you for, uh, for checking that out. All right, Marius, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a blast. Thank you for having me, Jed. Always a pleasure. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, acrac.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter, we are on Facebook, we are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, 
please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Drs. Kimia Kashkuli and April Liu are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.